0: Welcome to Movie Go-Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. Welcome to our bonus holiday episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for our bonus holiday episode that's not part of the main rotation of five episodes, Nicole Davis, how are you?
1: You know, I was texting with my sister earlier today, and I asked her how many times she thought we had watched this movie, because when we were kids, it was in the public domain. She estimates between 50 and 100, um, which I think it's probably toward the lower end of that, but that's actually a realistic number. So I am so ready to talk about this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Part of the bonus episode is actually a solid half-hour block in the middle where Nicole just one person acts out the entire film line by line.
1: Don't so. think I couldn't do it.
0: <laughs> uh, and now, now unfortunately, our, our wonderful co-host David Luzader is is down sick right now. If you follow him on, on Twitter, um, you'll, you'll see that he's got COVID, but I, I just want to reassure the audience that... He is vaccinated, as should you if you are not for whatever reason, because fortunately it's not that bad for him. He just can't really be on a microphone. So, um, we wish David a speedy recovery and all that good stuff over this holiday season. Uh, but joining us, I, I think our, I was going to say friend of the show, but I feel like he's best friend of the show. Like he's, he's been here like three, four times now and we love him, have worked with him many times in the past. Uh, Phil Rude, artist extraordinaire, uh, co-host with his son of a wonderful film podcast as well. Um, I'm totally blanking on the name of that podcast, even though I listen to it every week. It's the Picture a- Show! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got it! Yeah, there we go. Uh, d- uh Phil, how are you doing?
2: I'm good. You put a little tear in my eye here, Brett, but I'm a little fragile after watching this movie yesterday. So, uh, you know, yeah. it it's not a big hill to get over for that.
0: Yeah, we're all a little sappy right now with this. Uh, a reminder that next week's movie, by the way, is going to be a return to the regular programming on your feed. This episode should pop up as a... It's a bonus episode, so it won't contribute to the main, you know, chronology of these episodes, which is great. Uh, And next week is going to return to PrimeFlix Roulette, where we spun the wheel and we are watching *Lamageddon*. Yes, you heard that right. *Lamageddon*. But why don't we jump into this special holiday episode? I will also preface it and say that we didn't do any sort of special picking here. This wasn't a uh, wheel being spun or you voting we just decided that we wanted to talk about this movie
1: there was a consensus and
0: on holiday bonus episodes we get to do that so we watched 1946's it's a wonderful life george bailey grew up in the small town of bedford falls dreaming of a life of adventure seeing the world and building architectural marvels but over and over again his opportunities to leave evaporated before his eyes one day, when his uncle makes a terrible mistake that could send them both to prison, George reaches a breaking point and decides that the world would be better off without him. On Christmas Eve, he will find out if that's true. So we'll take it right over to our guest, Phil. This isn't You, you mentioned that this is on one, about once a year for you in your household?
2: Uh, in recent years, yeah. I saw this a bunch when I was a kid. Uh, they showed it to us in school when I was in elementary school one year. Uh, It was my grandmother's favorite movie of all time. I remember the year that the family bought my grandparents a VCR. I'm dating myself now. But um, (laughs) the movie that everybody got along with that was It's a Wonderful Life. And so, yeah, this movie was kind of uh, always around. And I've... I kind of found a newer appreciation for it in recent years. I kind of didn't see it for a while, and then I started watching it, and, you know, it gets played on TV every year. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, this movie's been around. I've seen it a ton, and um, uh, for me, it's one of those things that it gets a little bit better every time.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Nicole... Take the stage. <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> uh, one, w- a one-minute diatribe of how much you love this movie.
1: Um, I mean, I'm not going to try to mince words here. This is literally my very favorite movie of all time. I'm not going to argue that it's the best movie of all time, but this is my favorite Um like I said, I watched it growing up as a kid when it was in the public domain. So UHF stations would run it constantly during Christmas because it didn't cost them anything to do that. And so my sister and I would scour the TV listings. Remember TV listings, Phil? We'd scour the TV listings. I remember listings.
2: UHF stations, too. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and. We'd like circle every time we could find it's a wonderful life. And we'd schedule and we'd try to, you know, sit in front of the TV every time it was on. And I think one year we watched it five separate times and drove (laughs) my mother bonkers. And she actually literally, we've watched it so often. Gabrielle and I've watched this so often that my mother no longer likes this movie. Because (laughs) she was forced to have it in the background every Christmas season, multiple times a season. But lately, uh, living in, you know, close to the Boston area, my local independent nonprofit movie theater, the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, always a shout out for them. They show it on the big screen every year. So like the last five or six years. Uh, with the exception of 2020, um, last five or six years, I have gone to a screening and seen this in a theater with an audience. It's a completely different experience. I cry way more. And, um, you know, I just, there's so much to love about this movie, and it's much darker than a lot of people yeah, yeah. who... You know, the people who who dismiss this as just the saccharine uh, love letter to, you know, idealizing small-town life, they don't remember that, like, a little after an hour in, it gets really dark. It takes this very (laughs) dark turn. So, you know, there's just so much to appreciate, and I'll stop now, and we can just get into the details. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, quickly, you know, for myself, I've, I've watched this movie every Christmas for as long as I can remember in my life. I think, you know, this, this and the, um, you know, the original Miracle on 34th were kind of my mom's favorite Christmas movies to have on in the background, you know, bore, both from the same, within a year of each other. I think, I think, I think Miracle on 34th is a year later in 1947, but both 1940s Christmas films. Um, and I've always, I've always loved this movie. Because I, I have a fondness for Jimmy Stewart and I love, love, love Jimmy Stewart. And I think this is his best performance personally. Um, and we'll talk about that. But it's grown on me more as I've gotten older because I start to feel the weight of George Bailey. And I think watching it this year for the first time, and like, and you know, candidly, like this is, you know, this is the first year where, where, you know, people in my household went through. career transitions that affected us financially and we bought more christmas gifts this year never before because we have bigger family because we have two families to buy for and it's like all sorts of stuff like like you feel like the 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 burden of christmas more as you get older in some ways and like the the intense you know spend time with the family and spend money and time and it's exhausting Sorry family it's true and and I feel like you don't
1: realize how much your parents did to make Christmas a happy carefree experience for you as a kid.
0: Exactly right and I'm reaching that point where I just can't wait for Saturday so I can just like not be done with it cuz that sounds horrible but just like like at least we can be like all right we can finally relax you know a little bit. Um at least until I have to cook like 3 hours later. So Point being is that I think all those adult pressures that mount on George Bailey are not, um, fully realized as a child watching this film. And I think as you get older, you get more appreciation for where he's at, uh, which makes it even more poignant. Cause you're right, Nicole, this is the loveliest film that, you know, turns into a Christmas Eve suicide attempt that you'll find ever. It's, it gets, <laughs> you know, shockingly dark, uh, <laughs> God, but why don't we just get into that? Um, let's talk about that you know idealized small town community. You're totally right like the the Bedford Falls is is the classic everybody knows everybody's business and everybody's best friends with their neighbor community.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean Bedford Falls I think is supposed to be like either midstate or upstate New York somewhere. Yeah. Um, so when they say New York in the movie, they mean New York City uh, rather than the state. And it's, like you said, everybody knows everybody. And so they grow up together and they build this community and it's, you know, has this glow about it. And I don't know. This is, I think this is, again, cynics dismiss this as idealizing the American dream kind of thing, this sort of town. But, Some people really grew up in places like this, and there is such a value to this kind of community spirit, you know, the ability to, because you know everybody, to actually be able to pull them together, and there's no anonymity to hide behind, to, you know, like, there was no internet trolling back then. (laughs) you know every you <laughs> you know who you're talking to and you're going to see them every day so you tend to be a little more polite and you tend to try to help each other out and yeah. you see the benefits of helping each other out i don't know it's just uh but it, it's like a, it's idealized but it's also you hear the arguments against it. You know, George, as he's growing up, is constantly dreaming of leaving, leaving this tiny little nothing town and going to the big city and traveling the world.
3: Mary, I know what I'm gonna do tomorrow and the next day and next year and a year after that, I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm gonna see the world. So,
1: you know, this is, uh, he doesn't learn to appreciate what he has in this town until the end of the movie
0: yeah and it's also one of those things where there is an element of truth to these towns can you can both, you can both embrace what is great about the community but also understand that there are people like george that that want to leave and 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 you know maybe you know in the case of george we find out you know he had all these great things and look how many people he helped and on x y and z but I do think there are lots of people that do need to get out of these small towns. You know, I, I think about my fiance growing up in a, in an equally small town in Illinois. You know, in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, and uh, almost everyone that she went to col- went to high school with has stayed there, and that's either been a, a huge benefit to them because they've they haven't you know continued to grow in that community, and it's where they their family is, and it's what they love, or it's been really toxic to them because they never got to do things they could have done otherwise because they couldn't leave that small community. So I, I think this movie does a good job of towing that line um, and showing you, you know, he did want to get out, but I, I don't, I'm not going to approach the movie particularly cynically about that. Phil, you're also from a small town in Illinois. So
2: I'm, I'm from a, a small community of uh, 900 people. So wow, uh, <laughs> this, this kind of um when you say I, Uh, I read the show doc and I said like idealized and I'm thinking like this uh, this sort of like media like movie TV show idealized of white picket fences and everybody's uh, you know upper middle class and white and all of this and this is a very I think I think there's no need for cynicism with this movie because this movie shows like not everybody is is flourishing economically there's a there's a poor side of town. They talk about the slums that a lot of the immigrants and lower class, uh, uh, lower income, I'm sorry, uh, people live in. And even the Baileys who run a financial institution in this town are not like flush with cash. They talk all the time. You know, George is very frustrated about, you know, the drafty house and, and, oh, I I make, you know, only $45 a week and, and he has his head turned by money just like anybody who's in a a lower echelon of income would do. Um, but it's, um, it's a very realistic portrayal of a small town. I think, you know, there is a, there is a not great side of the tracks in every little tiny town. Um, and that's not a judgment on people who live on that side. It's just, there's an economically depressed side of every town. And I think Bedford falls definitely has that. And this movie does a great job of, of showing that the, the, subplot of uh you know george bailey basically his whole mission is to help the the downtrodden people of his town be more economically successful and and i think that's why everybody kind of roots for george bailey when they watch this movie you know
1: do you feel like if there were uh adverse events that happened in your town was there a sense of people coming together to try to help each other out
2: um there was always a neighborly aspect. My my grandfather was a farmer and every year during the harvest all the farmers of the area would go basically farm to farm and help everybody get their crop out, get it put away, get it to market. Um there were uh, there were fires in the town, there were sort of tragic events that would happen to somebody. And there would be, you know, a family would lose their house to a uh, fire and then, uh, people pulled together. Donations came out of the woodwork and people, uh, put the family up and got them a place to stay, replace clothes, uh, belongings, all kinds of, yeah, it was a real like sense of community there. I've not lived there in 25 years. I don't know exactly how, um, if that has maintained, uh, over the years or not but it it's uh, when i was growing up there it did there was a there was a sense of of community and people fell on hard times all the time people helped when they could sometimes it was enough sometimes it wasn't and that's just sort of the reality of small town a small working town uh like that and and i feel like bedford falls is a good parallel to that
1: yeah i put that in just because um i was thinking not just like the the town itself being a community where there's one drugstore and there's one grocery store right. and there's one garage. But because of the latest uh, screening that I went to Ivy Moylan, who's the executive director of the Brattle introduced the movie and came out in front of the screen and said that to her, this movie is what community means. And that this movie has things in it that are why we put one foot in front of the other every day. It's got those things that are important in life and what keep us going just from regular day to day. And I just thought that was so well put.
2: uh, Yeah, for sure.
0: That I wanted to throw that in. That's great. I love that. And, And I think that's a message that was needed in... 1946. This is right, right after World War II. Uh, and Nicole, you did put our docket, you know, how did World War II influence this film? You know, you know, for those unfamiliar, you know, Jimmy Stewart flew combat missions in World War II, many of them, and he was well over the age at which he was like primed to do it. Um, in his thirties, not, you know, in his younger twenties. And, uh, and this was before, well before we had any, Handle um, as if we've developed a really strong one on PTSD and you know what it means to come home from war, what it means to have been in conflict, how that might affect you mentally, emotionally, physically, and for Jimmy Stewart and you know Frank Capra to get together and make a movie literally called "It's a Wonderful Life," um, that you know focuses on. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. It focuses on you know
2: optimism. Yes. Yeah.
0: It, it, is, it, is, it focuses on optimism. It focuses on caring for what you have, realizing you're enough, realizing that you've made a difference and that small, ordinary things equal exceptional things in the broad scheme of life when you add all the little things together is a really powerful message coming from a guy that has just been through a lot of not great stuff. Right. And, and I think that's really poignant to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, Frank Capra served as well. He made documentary films for the military. He made the Why We Fight series. I didn't know that either. um, Which were documentaries about the various theaters of war and what the background was to how, you know, the war broke out and how it developed in that area to show to the troops. And he was instructed to make it, you know, not sentimental, to actually be just straightforward about it. So he had actually served in his own way. And yeah, Jimmy Stewart went and became a bomber pilot, and he advanced through the ranks very quickly in the four years that he was in the war, you know, and he came back um, feeling kind of insecure about his acting abilities. He'd been away from filmmaking for, you know, four or five years. So he was a little nervous, you know, he put off the big kissing scene for as long as he could. He kept asking Capra to push it back until he felt more comfortable in front of the camera so really yeah but he's i think he's brilliant in this movie
0: (laughs) for sure well well this the scene when when he when he realizes something is awry and he runs toward the camera and he's you know you you know what i'm talking about where he runs Mm. toward the camera and looks around and there's tears coming down his face like he was actually crying and that was not in the script he just was actually feeling it at that moment. Um, everything I love about Jimmy Stewart, and and you know, is embodied perfectly in this character. And and I and he's had some phenomenal, phenomenal roles. And and I and I love so many of them, but I can't, I can't put any of them above this. As, as much as I love Rear, you know, Rear Window. As much as I love Mr. Smith. Um, even as much as I love his later work like Vertigo. Like I can't put anything above It's a Wonderful Life for me. It is his de facto performance.
2: I think you see his whole range in this. You see him as an optimistic young kid. And Jimmy Stewart in his mid-30s playing like a recent high school graduate, you know, is like, (laughs) uh, I mean, (laughs) it's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, but he sort of has that wide-eyed optimism of a kid. And he still is able to kind of sell that as like, Uh, I'm going to go see the world and I'm going to make something of my, I want the biggest suitcase you got. And you know, all of this stuff, uh, right all the way through. And then you see this super, super dark side that he kind of lets out in little bits throughout the movie until it just opens the floodgates. He really, I think bounces his range around in a really interesting way in this. So I think, I think you're right. Rear window is the other one I was thinking of too brett Uh, i love that movie but i think for pure acting kind of tour de force i think it is right here i think it's this this really big uh wide-ranging performance that he gives in this
0: and 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 i think of you know my i really as as someone who who loves all i brought a couple political films to this podcast and um, what you no know. <laughs> uh you know they they they're very compelling to me uh you know Mr. Smith is you know Mr. Smith goes to Washington another Frank Capra film that they did you know um before the war right when or at least before the Americans were in the war um that has the optimistic side for sure that has you know Jimmy Stewart prancing into Washington going to fix everything for everyone, and it, it makes you feel really good. It's like some pre-West Wing feel-good politics that don't really exist. And um, But it doesn't have that dark side. It doesn't have that the elements that this film has. And you're right. I think it is just well-rounded.
1: Yeah. Can we talk about that kissing scene for just a second? Because my goodness, whoo, steaming, steaming in here. He goes over to Mary's house and he's mad because, you know, Harry came back and he was supposed to take over George's job at the building and loan, but he came home with a wife and a better job offer somewhere else. And you you know, you can see George deciding that he's got to stay so that Harry can take that opportunity and run with it. Mm-hmm. And so he goes over to Mary's house and he's all grumpy. You know, he's also just been rejected by Violet <laughs> out in the Middle of Bedford Falls, he comes up with this romantic pie in the sky date idea about climbing the mountain and walking in the feet and their walking in the grass and their bare feet. And Violet's just like, Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so when he comes to Mary's house, he's very disgruntled and kind of rude. Well, I... nice about your brother Harry and Ruth, isn't it?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, that's
1: all right. Don't
3: you like her? Well, of course I like her. She's a peach.
1: And so Mary's getting upset with him, so emotions are high. And he's almost leaving when Sam Wainwright calls and gets them both on the same phone because Mother's upstairs on the extension. Oh, oh wait a minute,
3: wait a minute. I want to talk to Mother. You... Tell Mary to get on the extension.
1: You're Mother's on the extension. We... I am not! We can both hear. Come here. We're, we're listening, Sam. So they're listening to Sam on the phone and. You can see that, you know, Jimmy's got his nose buried in Mary's hair, and he's just he's practically sweating. You know, you can like <laughs> see the, the lust lines passing back and forth between them. Oh, Mary? Mary?
3: Well, uh, uh, I'm here.
0: Uh, will you tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime, do you hear? The chance of a lifetime.
3: He says it's a chance of a lifetime. And
1: she turns to him and says, he says it's a chance of a lifetime. And all the passion erupts. And I just, every time I'm really kind of knocked out. You know, I watched, I've watched a fair number of film noir movies and I've never felt sexual tension in those (laughs) films the way I do in this scene right here in a 1946 film.
2: That's so much like, you feel how much he loves Mary and you feel how angry he is at himself for loving Mary. Like he so does not want to get married. He so wants to leave that town and be unattached. And, uh, and it's just, I, I love, I love that scene too, because it's just such a slow build. The tension is all there. And when it boils over, he's I don't want to ever get married. And he's just like going crazy as he's like making out with her.
3: Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics. I don't want any ground floors. And I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. Oh, Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. dear.
2: And it's just (laughs) like... It's it's such a contradiction and you're just like yeah George is screwed he's he's totally uh in for screwed in in the best way and I don't mean that literally like he's he's <laughs> getting it, it it's the idea of I want to be a loner I want to do what I want to do I don't want to be saddled with a family also I love my family it's this tension he yeah. carries through the rest of the movie um and I I think it's just brilliant and it's one of those aspects that it took me being an adult with a wife and children to really appreciate what that scene meant and and to understand both sides of of what George was feeling in that in that whole scene. It's it's great.
0: And as long as we're rhapsodizing about, you know, particular scenes of his and his performance, as cliche as it is. Uh, I, I don't care. My, one of my favorite scenes in all cinemas is, is, you know, lasso around the moon. It is, it's perfect. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's it's perfect. Do you want the moon? Mary? It's so good.
3: What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Barry. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it, and it all dissolves. See. And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair.
0: And oh, the voice. I want to talk about the voice. That's a perfect, (laughs) that's a perfect segue because I realized something this time around that I hadn't in prior viewings, which is that, yes, he has that unmistakable Jimmy Stewart voice. But if you look at everything else around the same time, there's just distinct lack of that you know, transatlantic accent. And I realized I was starting to fade out in the forties and the fifties, but like, there's something about like old timey, um, like twenties through forties vocals in movies that create a cognitive, you know, dissonance for a modern viewer. And there's something about, and I don't know what it is, but there's something about the way people speak in it's a wonderful life that feels like it doesn't have that. It feels more modern. And and I don't know I don't know how to pin it down, but I just don't feel like their voices are as nineteen fortiesy. <laughs> it's the best way I can put it.
2: Oh, you mean Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? It's that same <laughs> right. that same phone voice. But,
0: but it's not <laughs> yeah. it's not all that voice, right? Right? And and I was doing some research afterward because I was always under the impression like the transatlantic accent was like the twenties, and it turns out you know that it was starting to fade out in the forties.
2: It was like a it was like a very distinct like. uh Almost stage acting kind of voice, though, right? Is that is That's that what, what you're talking about, Brett? Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying trying to pin down. Is, oh, is like that Catherine stage
2: like kind of yes. the the yes. his girl Friday kind of thing with the the 100%. real percent the, oh, okay. the snappy chatter, you know, like the the way nobody talks. That's-
0: Yes, right. that that is what that is what I'm trying is trying to pin down. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a credit to the script that it is written in a fashion that feels much more like honest dialogue between real people and it's not that snappy, you know, nineteen forties banter. Um but it just it feels like the script holds up exceptionally well. It's just it's not only is it well acted, but it's really well written.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That scene where uh I literally just rewatched this before we started recording. Oh the scene where Violet walks down the street with that, I love that. George compliments yeah. her dress. She's like, I only wear this one. I don't care how I look. You know, And the <laughs> man turns in the middle of the street and almost gets hit by a car watching her. That's so funny. <laughs> um, but Ernie says, yeah, how would you like to? And you know, George just says, yes. Yes. <laughs> and Ernie asks Bert, the cop, if he wants to get in the cab too and go for a ride. And Bert's like, no, I'm you can go home and see what the wife's doing. <laughs> just like, like that. I don't trust myself vibe. I'm going to go, ch- I'm going to go check in with my wife <laughs> and remember why I'm a happily married man. So there's just yeah. these lots of little touches. It feel like it that. feels
2: authentic the way guys would talk to each other. Uh, there's a, yeah. there's a really, the scene where, um, Harry's getting ready to go to the party. He wants to take the plates to the party. That Mm -hmm. scene, there are so many moving parts to it that I made a note of it that this is like, it felt like a Robert Altman scene where there's (laughs) four or five different conversations going on and there, it doesn't feel, it feels chaotic, but it all still fits together in a way that feels really natural, the way like, Something like uh, uh, The Long Goodbye has a bunch of those scenes. Uh, I just rewatched A Prairie Home Companion. These all feel like these Altman set pieces with a bunch of characters interacting. And it just made me think, like, was this movie like an influence on that? Because the way it's all written is perfect, and the way it's put together, the way it's directed, and the way all the actors interact, it all just works like clockwork and it's so fun to watch and it feels real. It doesn't feel manufactured even though it is. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. You've got Harry getting dressed for the party. You've got Harry getting the pies and the dishes together from the party. You've got him and George carrying their mother downstairs and plonking her in their dad's lap. They've, you've got, you know, George and his father eating dinner together. You've got, um, The mother off in the kitchen later, getting everything together for Harry. And then you've got Annie coming and going through the kitchen, dropping in her commentary.
3: Boys and girls and music. Why do they need gin?
2: I love Annie.
1: Basically (laughs) continually reinforcing how the kids need to be better to their parents.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about Annie, because you had Annie in our discussion topic. And she's been a, a controversial character over the last 70 years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's the only black character with a speaking part in this movie. There are a couple of random people of color in the final scene in um, George and Mary's house um, for the finale. But this is actress Lillian Randolph. And she, she took a lot of what are now kind of controversial roles. She played a lot of domestic servants in her acting yeah. career, uh, including a, a more famous one called Beulah. And she's also the voice of, I don't know if you've ever seen any of them, Brett, but the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, she's the voice of the human woman that you yeah. see. Sometimes you only ever see like her calves and her slippers. Um, sure. But I mean, the character's name is Winsworthy and I'm quoting here, Mammy two shoes. Uh, oh, no. So, <laughs> You know, she took these parts and her feeling was not that it was harmful to black people for her to take these roles. It was, you know, if she didn't take these roles, if these roles didn't exist, then black people might not get any. So she was, you know, making sure that they were on screen, that they were on the radio, that they were on TV by being there. Um, So I'm not going to make a commentary about that as you know middle-aged white lady and am pra- practically put karen and blazon on my forehead um <laughs> but you know this was she's she gets some of the funniest lines yeah in this movie and it's great i don't love that harry sexually harasses her on the way into the kitchen she said you stay away from here i'll hit you with this broom um as he's chasing her and it's implied that he smacks her on the butt uh on the way in but it's played for laughs it's kind of laughed off and uh, i don't know all i can say is it's 1946 and it's kind of remarkable that she's got a speaking part in this movie i'm glad she's here (laughs) um and i'm glad that she gets some of the best lines in these scenes
0: yeah and, and i know some of the ongoing criticism over the years has obviously been that you know she, she was given lessons at one point to to you know talk in a a stereotypical quote-unquote black dialect you right. know by um, a
1: caucasian actor <laughs>
0: of course of course what 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 they assumed uh black dialect is and and like you, you know some of her you know wide-eyed grinning facial expressions and stuff in this film are a little caricature and you could tell she was directed to be that way
3: oh, I is
0: is you know i i actually saw one analysis of it where they took photos from it's a wonderful life and how they shot her versus just photos of what she actually looks like oh wow. and there's a fairly stark difference in terms of just like the the visuals they went with with her um but like nicole said you know this is the mid-40s and and i'm glad she's there i mean this was a woman who ended up being in film for another seven decades
1: yeah she had a long career i think she was on the cosby show at at one point um as far up as as the 80s
2: that's crazy yeah
1: and she's so good here (laughs) yeah
2: I think she is. I think, uh, uh, stereotypes yeah. aside, she does. She has some hilarious lines. Like, she yells at George and his dad for finally saying, I love you to each other. Yeah. Now, you've got talent, son.
3: I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. Why, did you hear that, Annie? I heard it's about time one of you look
2: at it. <laughs> I'm going to miss old Annie. It, it's just sort of like you get this sense that however she was directed to be, you still get a sense that this is, yes, she is a, a servant. She is an employee of the Bailey family, but she they interact with her as a member of the family. You wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you?
3: Well, I I well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to you would
2: they interact in a a kind of familial way that doesn't make her feel like a second class citizen uh, despite however uh, mainstream America treated. Uh, black people at the time. I, I just, yeah. I don't know. I think she's a, a great addition to the cast. Um, uh, yes, problems aside, I can't, I'm not going to comment on that either. I don't, I'm, yeah. I got my tap shoes on and I'm dancing around <laughs> as, as as delicately yeah. as I can by saying yeah. I like the character, but uh, yes, there are some problems.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would have liked to have seen a little more about her life outside of the bailey family it's like does she live there does she have her own house you know she's she's not married so it's you know assumed it being 1946 it's assumed since she's not married she doesn't have any children so i mean that's (laughs) that's one of those you know white people justification well at least she's not ignoring her own family at christmas time to be with the baileys (laughs) or you know during these big events but no, I think Lillian Randolph's wonderful. I wish she'd had a bigger part. I am glad that she's here. So, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to touch a little bit more on the town and you know how this entire town was a set, That's which crazy. is crazy, yeah. remarkable to me considering Big set. like 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 the biggest set at the time. Um, you know, multiple you know acres of, of lots of uh, building out. You know bedford falls and and not only is that remarkable but this film beyond its timeless story i think you have to look at the caliber of the filmmaking and, and it's frank capra so that that's it's obvious right where it's it's like talking about spielberg 40 <laughs> years later but the the caliber of filmmaking is so high that even just in terms of the audio cornflakes were traditionally used because you could get away with that in black and white as fake snow but they were loud you know, people would step on them and, and they kind of, you know, made those rustling sounds. So they actually ma- invented new fake snow. That's closer to what we use today um, for this movie because they didn't want to have to do the ADR. They wanted to get the dialogue the first time around. Uh, right. That... I
1: think it was like soap and firefighting. Film,
0: yeah, right. <laughs> like um, so like that combined with... And, and it landed more naturally and stuff. So especially on the scene on the bridge and stuff, like it just it works a lot better. It doesn't melt though. Um, you can see that. That com- <laughs> 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 yeah it does not it does not melt um but that combined with this, this remarkable set uh just a feat of filmmaking and i don't think people talk about that enough we talk about the sentiment of the movie and that's all great and the performances but my goodness what a film to be made
1: yeah yeah those were full-size trees that they transplanted for the middle right. avenue of so Street. was this like
2: the most expensive movie to date, I mean, to build an entire town out like that. No, I mean, trans- you know, they'd been to- gone
1: with the wind. You know, sure, of I mean, those were way ta- more expensive. All the biblical yeah. epic stuff. So, yeah, I
2: suppose, but it just seems like God. What it? A- okay, we're going to build a town <laughs> <laughs> to to shoot this one movie. <laughs> you know, like it's crazy. Yeah.
0: I mean, it was a budget of of three over three million dollars, and it was you know financially a flop at the time it barely made back three it wasn't till later on especially because when it when NBC event, eventually bought the rights to it or obtained the rights to it somehow that they then yeah. made it like the christmas eve thing that's been going on for 30 years well, 40 years yeah, but i think um,
1: honestly it going into public domain was the best thing that could have happened to it because it exposed yeah the next generations to it every christmas in multiple places and people either tends to be kind of love it or hate it um there's probably a few indifferent people i haven't met any though um but everybody's seen it now and the people yeah. who loved it have now bought it and now that i think it's warner brothers has the rights to it now i'm not sure Par- if, not if, it's, if it's on nbc
2: every year it's probably on paramount paramount, yeah.
1: paramount.
0: it's
2: nbc yeah. it's on nbc so
1: paramount has the rights now so they've they've cranked it they've drawn it back to once a year
0: so uh, NBC has actually aired this every new year's eve um i'm sorry every christmas eve since the early 80s Mm. so that's where a lot of people have kind of been been indoctrinated into the the yearly viewing (laughs) so yeah i mean I, i was looking at now i'm looking at like lists of like most expensive movies and I need the one that's that's adjusted for inflation, because I know it's... Wait, adjusted for inflation? The most expensive movie?
2: There's no way it's Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> My God. <laughs> it's,
1: it's possible. There's a lot of CG work in that movie.
2: There's a lot of salary in that movie, too.
0: Okay, Pirates of the Caribbean 4 is the most expensive movie of all time when adjusting for inflation. $435 million. Yes, I do.
1: However else you feel about them. They make money, so good studios are willing to invest.
0: Good Lord. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that. I think the way they made this movie is really, really cool. Um, moving on to some of our other discussion topics. Um, technology that wasn't to this movie's benefit. Color. Uh, <laughs> I, I told Nicole <laughs> earlier this week that I'd never seen the color version. And I saw they had both on, on Amazon. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I try out the colored version? I've never seen it before. Don't watch this colorized. It's bad. I I got 20 minutes into it.
1: I told you it was bad and you didn't believe me. (laughs) I know.
0: And I was trying to like, like to see a different perspective of it, you know, and, and no, 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 no one needs that. I, I got 20 minutes into it. And Nicole, you mentioned it's like watching a watercolor. And I think that's like the perfect analysis. It's just, you know, we've talked about this before that the way things are lit for black and white versus color is so different. And it just feels. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and even, and even if you haven't seen the black and white version, I actually do believe that if you're not like me and you're so used to the black and white version that the colorized version looks weird, I still think you'd think the colorized version looks weird. Yeah. It's just not right. It just looks, doesn't look like reality. And I think that that would wig you out. Even if you were someone like David hadn't seen this film before, I would have been curious to get his thoughts on it, but, yeah. um,
1: Yeah, because Because of the different lighting, adding color just weirdly sort of flattens everything out. It takes a lot of the depth out of the movie, a lot of the visual depth.
2: There is a big difference, uh, even when they make uh, things like, I think they did the Snyder cut. They did like Fury Road, where they take them back to black and white. Mm. And I'm always kind of a purist in that, like, if it's not shot in black and white it's not going to transfer the same way because of things like lighting and it it goes the other way because was it ted turner that was trying to colorize all the old movies in the in the 80s and they just they never looked right it was this really unnatural color uh for the same reasons because i i did the same thing brett i went on amazon and i'm like Oh, okay. Uh, it, it's a Wonderful Life. Oh, they have both versions here. Well, I know which one I'm not watching, and uh, that was the color. W- and uh, Christy <laughs> came and sat down, and she's like, "Yeah, black and white version." Is there a color version of this? I'm like, "Yeah, don't. We're not even bothering with it. I'm like, I'm not even, you know, <laughs> I'm not even giving you the choice here. If you want to watch that, there's another TV in the other room. But we're, You're yeah. like, it. uh, yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, it's it's. Feels kind of sinful and and uh, not as the <laughs> the original creative team intended, and and so that is kind of the more pure version, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting you mentioned more recent films that have done that because I I went and saw Logan when they put it in black and white, and I saw it at the music at the music box theater in Chicago, and it, it was very interesting because it was the best version of that I'd ever seen because the the director James Mangold had always wanted to shoot it in black and white and knew that even if the studio wouldn't let him, he was going to light it in such a way that he could do a ton of post work to make it look the way he wanted it to look in black and white. Um, so there was a ton of post-production work on the Logan black and white. They didn't just slap a filter on it to give it what he thought should be the authentic black and white look of that film. And made it beautiful, but you're right. There are a lot of films where they do that for novelty and it doesn't quite work. Um
2: It doesn't translate real well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it reminds me of, you know, I, I remember seeing to kill a mockingbird so many times growing up and lots of, you know, lots of classroom teachers will throw on the, the colorized version because it's, they, they think it's going to be a little bit more palatable for the, you know, for the, for the youngins that don't have to watch black and white. Right. Same thing. It looks really weird (laughs) it's it's not right um so yeah watch this movie in black and white if if you're cool with that i know some people are like vehemently against black and white and give it a shot it's it's great um let's talk a little bit about italians (laughs) stereotypical italian family is actually a mirror a mirror of frank capra's own nicole
1: yeah yeah, this latest screening that I went to, I was watching the Italian family, and I was like, "Ooh, oh, that's wow, that's really, you know, it's the Italian family with like a million kids and a goat." And, the martinis. You know, this is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the martinis and this giant truck full of furniture. It's like, "Ooh, is that is is that poking fun at immigrants?" And you no, know, this is this is Frank Capra's family. They immigrated over from Italy. He was Frank Capra was born in Italy, and um, they came over here. His father was a fruit picker, and Frank um, he was like the first of his family to go to school. Like he went to college, um, and then he learned, work on films, and worked his way up to being a director. And he said that as he you know went through college, he kind of became more and more ashamed of his lower class immigrant family and wouldn't bring people home and it was just later that he learned to embrace that again and so i mean yeah i mean it's a stereotype but there really were families like this and i love seeing them move from you know the slum housing to bailey park that (laughs) kind of very boxy, samey development over yeah. a cemetery. I hope they move the graves, not just the headstones. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like some weird sequel. It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life poltergeist combination.
0: There is a weird sequel, by the way, which I, uh, I can't even talk about this oh, Wonderful Life sequel.
1: I don't even want to know. But, you know, it's just nice the that the martinis are portrayed lovingly. And they're seen as like a little bit funny, but not denigrated. And the person who uses pejorative terms about Italians is the bad guy.
2: I had never heard that pejorative term for Italians before either. That is, yeah, there's something yeah. about the old timey speak in here that is either endearing. Like, are you on the nest, Mary? Like, that's uh, so. I, I laughed so hard at that.
1: You're right. Well, they weren't allowed to say pregnant. The production code wouldn't let them say it. Oh,
2: really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, But then when uh, Potter Potter refers to Italians that way, I'm like, I've never heard that before either. And that is so bizarre. Like, and that could have been a code thing, too, where they're like, we got to tone this down. But um, it it still is like, it's such a strange, uh, it's such a strange slur.
1: Yeah, he was... I think he's talking to George when he's making him his offer, he talks to, yeah, his big offer. Says, "Do you want to spend the rest of your life playing nursemaid to a bunch of garlic eaters?" And everybody, Jeez. <laughs> like I said, watching this in the theater, everybody kind of goes, "Ooh!"
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he says that.
1: So, and I mean, Lionel Barrymore is just so brilliantly evil in this movie. Yeah.
3: In jail, go on home. They're waiting for you.
1: <laughs> and he gets away with a a rarity in the production code of this time. You know, the the bad guy gets away with it.
2: Code, uh, yeah. He does that, not get pick.
1: punished for stealing that eight thousand dollars. So, right. but it doesn't matter at the end. So everybody forgets about it.
2: Yeah.
0: I this movie the some of the way some of the ways in which they speak though are exactly how my. 90 something year old grandfather speaks. So, like, this is still stuck around in some of that generation that grew up with this movie earlier on. You know, he, he still refers to, um, any couple in our family is going steady, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Me and my fiance are going steady now. (laughs) So, uh, that's just a thing. Um, all right. So, seeing this on TV versus seeing it with an audience, Nicole, you mentioned a couple times, you know, as you did just now. Seeing it with an audience is quite a bit different. Uh, biggest takeaway from this year coming back to it, especially post-pandemic or middle somewhere, three-fourths pandemic, uh, <laughs> you weren't able to see it the year before is what I'm getting
1: that, at. Right, yeah. Biggest takeaway. Oof. I think it's, it's a little bit more intense watching it You know, watching movies on a big screen versus watching them on TV anyway, I always find a more intense experience because the lights are down, you're shutting out everything else, you're not scrolling through your phone, you know, you're very focused on what you're watching and hearing. And having other people in the theater feeling the same things that you do in that moment kind of intensifies things. And this was the first year that I cried during the scene where... Young George gets slapped by Mr Gower when he comes back not having delivered the pills because he knows there's poison in them.
3: Why well, did you write into the living room right away? Don't you know that boy's very sick? <laughs> hey, my here. You lazy lover. Mr Gower, you don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you it. be. You got the telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It wasn't your fault, Mr Gower. <laughs> Just look and see what you did. Look at the bottle you took the bottle from. It's poison. I tell you, it's poison. I know you feel bad. <laughs>
1: and I just started leaking and I'm like, what? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> because this kid, this 12 year old kid, is so compassionate yeah. that he's forgiving an adult who's hitting him on an ear that's, like, just healed from him losing his earring in it from saving his brother. Um, and he's forgiving this adult who is just in mourning for his kid who's died of the Spanish flu. Wear a mask, everybody. Uh, and
0: yeah. I, I did throw in our docket. George <laughs> Bailey would wear a mask. Yeah. So. Absolutely, am <laughs> just so,
1: Yeah, he's Oh, and it just got me. It just got me this year. It is. It's very intense.
2: My wife saw this uh, for the first time, I think, uh, last year or the year before. And she came in and sat down right at kind of the start of the drugstore scene. And then that happened, and she started crying. She goes, I was not expecting this. Like, I I was not expecting this level of intensity this early in the movie or that in old I mean, let just call this what it is. It's an old movie and a lot of times there is I think uh I think a lot of old movies have problems connecting to modern audiences uh emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um I think maybe that has to do with some of the the acting styles that we were talking about earlier, but in the I mean, it really just sort of gut punched her uh because yeah. she wasn't expecting it and it is it I tear up at that. Um, but I also tear up when uh, young Mary whispers in George's deaf ear that she's going to love him.
3: Is this the ear you can't hear on? George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'm just like, that is the sweetest, most pure thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's it's great.
1: Oh, my heart. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that part. I mean, I didn't realize... Until this year when I was kind of timing it out, that scene in the drugstore it's just that the scene with the two girls and George at the at the lunch counter of the drugstore yeah. it's it's only about two minutes long, and there's so much packed into it.
3: Hello George Hello Mary hello Violet Two cents worth of shoelaces she was here first.
1: I'm still thinking. Shoelaces? Please, Georgie. I like him. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? Here you are. Help me down. Help you down. And it's the most delightful scene in the movie, I think, between um, Violet coming in and saying, you know, hello, George, hello, hello, Mary, and Mary going... Hello, Violet. <laughs> yeah,
2: just,
1: just like, uh, uh, it's
2: like it's children girl. playing like adults. It's it's a it's yes. like a, a Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang. With the 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 whole charm of that thing is little kids yeah. saying adult things in little kid voices, and it's
1: right. But yeah. then jumping back to being kids, sure. you know, when Violet says, "Help me down," and he's like, "Help you down." <laughs> <laughs> Or when Mary says she doesn't like coconuts. Made
3: up your mind yet? I'll take chocolate. With coconuts? I don't like coconuts. You don't like coconuts? Say, Brainless, don't you know where coconuts come from? <laughs> <You>
0: know,
3: just <laughs> and just the
1: casual toss-off. It's yeah. delivered so brilliantly. And yeah, I put it in our notes so I wouldn't forget. The actors are Bobby Anderson is credited as little George, Jean Gale as little Mary and Janine Ann Roos as little Violet. And they're all so good. And I just, Oh, oh, I love it to pieces.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I I also think um, something we're circling around is, I think it's fair to say that in the same way that as Phil mentioned, older films have trouble connecting with a modern audience, you know, in regard to their messaging, Um, and their script. I also think that older films can drag. There's pacing problems. You know, Mm -hmm. people watch movies differently now. And this is, this movie's over two hours. And when I put it on, I really thought it was like 80 minutes. I, I I thought that that's how I remembered it. That's how it felt after watching it. For a movie that's over two hours long, it moves shockingly quickly and doesn't have pacing issues. And that is, that it was a delightful surprise because I mean, like, hell, movies, 40 years old have pacing problems. I love alien as much as the next nerd. It's kind of slow. Like it's, (laughs) that was really pleasantly surprising this time around. I realized just how quick, quick pace this movie is.
1: Right. There's well, something, there's something important in every scene. There are no wasted scenes in this movie. I think the one that probably drags the most, I would say is uh, Clarence and George in the little shack after they come out of the water.
0: Yeah, in the river
1: and that exposition bit about Clarence being an angel and whatnot.
0: Yeah. But then you don't, but then you get to learn about how he's like angel second class. And <laughs> you know, it, 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 it it's sets cute. the frame. It sets the framework for him getting his, you know, his promotion at the very end. So it, it has a payoff. Yeah. So uh, the dark tone of this movie or the last act of this movie almost feels like a different film. Yeah. I I mean, when George is going around and, and in particular, God, the scene when he goes into the bar and starts finding people in dire straits that he had previously helped secure, you know, mortgages or, or what have you, and and now they're you know near homeless or 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 having even worse issues. God, it's a gut punch.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. what happens to Mister Gower Mr. if Gowers, George yeah. isn't there? Mister Gower,
0: right? Oh my gosh, uh, no, you're right. It feels like a different movie, and I think that's. That's what I love about this movie is that it, it it can be a Christmas movie and it can be uplifting and emotional, but it can it can be well rounded in that roller coaster of emotion in the same way that Jimmy Stewart acts it. And and I think that's why to me it is the quintessential Christmas movie, because um not only is the is the theme timeless, you know, that you're enough, that you realize what you have, um, it's a Christmas message that really has nothing to do with gifts. There's no Santa. There's no Jesus. I guess there's an angel, but it's loosely religious. Um it just centers around what matters and you know Phil you put in our docket, you know every life matters and has an impact. And and I think that this movie captures that perfectly and is the spirit of Christmas beyond any of the other Christmas stuff that inundates other Christmas movies.
2: I think I think it goes beyond the the Christmas aspect cuz this was originally not released as a Christmas movie, is that? Is that right? This was like a summer release or something.
0: I believe you're right, which I believe Miracle was too. Um, I think Miracle came out in like June. <laughs> but then it
2: kind of got appropriated as, as Christmas programming, uh, which it totally works for. But I think the message is is bigger. It's just, it, it's across all spectrums. Like your life matters. The, the scene, and when I said this it feels like a different movie, I didn't mean that in a detrimental way because it fits with the rest of the movie so well. But there's such a dark edge on it, and I think it hammers that message of every life matters and every life has an impact when he finds Harry's gravestone.
3: All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We went here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry.
2: And he realizes not only did Harry die, but every man that he saved during the war also died. And and it's just like this domino effect that uh it's such a it's such a dark moment and it's such a gut punch uh when he realizes i wanted to selfishly not be here and these are all the lives that impacted and that is just it's horrifying it's almost it's almost horror movie like gothic horror movie kind of stuff right um or a uh it reminded me a lot of a twilight zone episode too you know um but yeah it's, yeah
1: the soundtrack oh, in yeah. that moment is definitely horror movie too.
2: yeah Ooh, oh
1: yeah. yeah
2: yeah
0: and and i mean i we haven't, we haven't mentioned it outright, but you know, this is, this, this movie just pulls a Christmas carol and, and kind of does something new with it, you know, like, like that, that whole thematic of, of the dark things that happened because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, the angels coming to show you what, what could have been or what will be, um, is a Christmas carol, you know, it's, it's Charles Dickens. Yeah, it so, um, but I don't think this movie's, derivative of it. I think it does something incredibly different and new with it. Um, Seeing this movie as a kid versus seeing it as an adult, you mentioned that a little bit earlier, Phil, and and so did I, that, you know, it's, again, you you understand George Bailey distinctly differently if you are an adult, if you're a parent, if you're a husband or wife. Um, I think it's quite different.
2: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I um, talked about older movies and having a hard time connecting to modern audiences. And uh You know the idea of showing a color movie to kids because you know black and white movies are old and boring and i think yeah. I think I watched this movie and I liked it fine. And I recognized it as a good movie when I was a kid, but there's something about understanding the frustration that George Bailey feels you kind of have to be an adult and live through that frustration for yourself before I think this movie really lands with you. And in a way, like, I connect to this movie so much better as an adult having gone through raising kids. And uh, this isn't a good way to put this, but I think everybody will get the gist. You feel a little bit trapped in whatever situation you're in when you're responsible for other people. And, you know, George feels boxed in in this movie. And once you go through that, you really understand so much more where his frustration is coming from, um, until it boils over. And, and sometimes it does boil over and sometimes it's ugly like that. And it's just, it, it is, it impacts me so much more, uh, as an, as an adult than it did when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. I have a lot more empathy for that scene where he like breaks all his architectural stuff. I lose it house. every
2: like, time watching that. Throws yeah. it all
1: over the table because you, when you're a parent, you, you, sign up for an entire pack of obligations for as long as your child is dependent on you. And while that's something, you know, that parents who really care about their children do happily, they do it, you know, it's it's always worth it because of what you get back from it. Um, It's a very fulfilling thing, even though it's hard. But there are moments where you get overwhelmed, and yeah. it's like, what happened to the life I had, where I could decide where I was going to go, and I didn't have to consult anybody, and I didn't have to worry about who was going to watch, you know, watch the five-year-old while I go to, uh, while I run off to Hawaii. <laughs> it's the whole. Yeah, it can get overwhelming, and I, I totally get it. Why do we have to have all these kids? <laughs> yes. It's like, well, you know, George is kind of it's kind of partly your fault, there, George, that you've yeah. got all these kids. If you didn't realize that,
0: and so. also, also, in, you 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 grasp how scared the kids are as an adult, oh, better, yeah. and just and just how just how upsetting that is you know to see dad unravel and that's a real thing like i feel like we've all experienced a parent unravel like that and and seeing it as an adult is 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 harder to watch you know it's it's it is um and again it gives george bailey even further depth and makes him less of a caricature i'm not saying he ever was but i think someone who is you know dead inside could, could could accuse some Jimmy Stewart characters of being, you know, optimistic caricatures, and I, and I don't think that's the case.
1: Another aspect of Jimmy Stewart's performance is you constantly see him st- stomping that frustration down yeah. in his head. Yeah, yeah. You know, Harry comes back, and he's, he's married, and he can't take over. You know, he doesn't—George— gets trapped right before he goes to college by the building and loan board who says they'll only keep going if he stays for it and right over and over and over again there's these things that keep him from leaving the bank run keeps him from going on his honeymoon even with mary yeah and so every time you see him kind of stuff it down until it erupts but you see him doing it you see that he's not happy-go-lucky George Bailey it's just the face that he's presenting to most people
2: that's what I was saying earlier about like it comes out in little bits throughout the movie when he kicks his car door out of frustration Mm -hmm. when he's you know he's just constantly angry but soldiering on he's a martyr and he hates being a martyr like legitimately he is I mean he is constantly giving up what he wants to do for the sake of the town for the sake of his kids for the sake you know and you just see it boiling up and up and up throughout the movie. And I think that's that's what I was talking about. That what's so great about that this performance is is it's constantly back and forth. It's in yeah. a, in a really nuanced way. I really like it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we'll we'll spin through a couple other quick discussion topics here, but yes, spinsterhood—the worst—the worst fate of all. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was that's the fun part about seeing this with an audience is that every time when the angel says she's just about to close up the library, (laughs) everyone laughs in the audience. It's like, oh, no, she never got married.
2: Of course she's a librarian. (laughs) Her
1: eyebrows are terrible now. She wears (laughs) frumpy skirt suits.
2: Glasses, not glasses.
1: (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just like, oh, it was funny because I noticed this time there's, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. And one of the things that gets foreshadowed, like when George Bailey comes home one night, from a late night at the bank, at the building in Lone and talks to Mary and Mary he asks Mary, you know why did you marry a guy like me? Just keep from being an old maid?
2: So, <laughs> yeah,
1: There's these little little things throughout the film, but yeah, yeah, it's like this it's painted as this awful, horrible fate. But, I mean, I can kind of see its point, not in that, oh no, she never married, but the Mary that we've come to know in the movie is this bubbling, richly emotional, kind person and support to George, and she's like this tremendous force, and she loves taking care of her kids, and she's renovated the house by herself, and she worked with the USO during the war, and... You know, she's got this whole rich life and all that's gone without George there. So, I mean, it's I can see why that's a worse fate, but it's it is kind of sad that it hinges on whether or not she falls in love with George Bailey.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: it's like
1: what happened to Sam Wainwright? Well, why wouldn't she have married him? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, she wasn't going to just settle for Sam Wainwright. Hee haw. But, uh,
1: <laughs> but, I mean, if George isn't there, you know, Sam's well off. He's interested. Mary's mom is pushing him on her. Yeah.
2: She would have <laughs> she, got in on the ground floor of soybeans or whatever it was. Right. Uh, Soybean
1: plastic. Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: <laughs> now, uh, issues of economic divides, hoarded wealth, greed, and community versus capitalism are surprising to see in a movie this old, seeing as we've apparently made zero progress on these things. <laughs>
3: You, you said that, what did you say just a minute ago, they, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down? Do you know how long it takes a working man to save
0: $5,000? Yeah, what goes around comes around, and this movie... Um... Is I think you know Phil, you astutely point these things out as to why they're you know this movie continues to be timeless because the the impending fear of losing your home on Christmas Eve is still sure. a real thing, and uh, and you know we we haven't solved these issues.
2: It just uh, these these always stand out to me when I see something that's very much a topical conversation today, and then I'll watch an old movie and be like, oh, they were talking about it back then, and nobody listened then either, like in. And then you go on social media and you see, uh, I don't want, I'm, I'm just going to get political. You see Trump supporters <laughs> going, how come we can't have the values that we're in? It's a wonderful life. And it's like, that's exactly what we've been asking this whole time because th- this isn't like a celebration of Mr. Potter. This is Mr. Potter, the wealth hoarding, uh, uh, greedy capitalist cornerstone of this town is the bad guy of this movie. Like, and it's just, um, yeah, it always strikes me as a little bizarre. The the inability of people, the people who need to get this message for progress to to happen, uh, never, they they cheer on this movie, but they don't seem to get the message of this movie.
3: Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. No, Tom, just enough to tide you over to the bank. Re-opens. I'll take $242.
1: Yeah, Yeah, but although at the time that this movie came out, uh, some people accused it of having communist leanings. Oh, I'm sure. Because the capitalist banker was the bad guy.
0: Right, and everyone comes together with the money at the end.
1: And there was this, you know, kind of socialist building and loan, willing to loan to working class people who hadn't saved enough by being thrifty, the thrifty working class. (laughs) Yeah, they hadn't pulled themselves up by their bootstraps enough yet. So they right. didn't deserve to get loans yet.
2: You know, Mr. Martini and his avocado toast taking up all his money <laughs> and uh, <laughs> should have just got rid of his iPhone. You know.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, you're. You're. And it's funny because we we see. It's funny when we see like these alternate realities in films where the maniacal rich guy gets richer at the expense of everyone else. Like when I see Pottersville, I can't help but think of biff's casino for some reason (laughs) that's just like what comes to mind (laughs) because that is another element of like of like you know in this alternate reality in this alternate future you know um the worst of of biff has run wild and and you know profited from it oh back Um, to the future
1: too where biff is basically trump
0: yeah yeah (laughs) it's yeah (laughs) biff's casino where he lives in like a giant casino (laughs) right um and, and like biffville or whatever they end up calling it um but yeah, it's 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 again, it's a theme that is, you know from "It's a Wonderful Life" to "Back to the Future" two to today. Uh, we just continue to see it and and don't see a ton of progress on that front.
2: Nobody has ever said from "It's a Wonderful Life" to "Back to the Future" two, <laughs> so uh, congratulations on that, Brett. I
0: know. I think I I think I might just be the first person that to draw that line. Oh, we um, can throw
1: the butterfly effect in there as well if you want. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> Uh, and, and and I suppose that you know somewhat answers your question, Phil. Did this movie influence later movies and filmmakers? I'm sure that Spielberg was sitting there, or not Spielberg who who made Back to the Future? Zemeckis. Uh, Zemeckis. Zemeckis. I'm sure he was sitting there saying, you know, and it's a wonderful life. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, but I, I mean, I think obviously, I mean, I think, I think even just the performances and the filmmaking te- techniques, you know, Jimmy Stewart alone influenced... Like, I was I was reading this really interesting interview with George Clooney that was in. I think I can't remember what was in last month, but it was all it was. Is it, it was super? George Clooney has like mastered the art of being the nineteen something, the early nineteen something's like, but modern film star. Yeah. Where like he knows he's famous and he knows he's George Clooney, and he's not going to pretend he's not. Whereas like younger actors would, they like try to get on your level. He's like, no, I am George Clooney, and there is something really interesting about the way he talks and the way he presents himself. And re- multiple times in the interview, he went back to Jimmy Stewart. And was like, yeah, I just I wanted to be Jimmy Stewart, and he kind of became a different generation's Jimmy Stewart, like a lot
1: of I, I. I would say that's Tom Hanks.
0: Okay, sure, but at least I'm, I'm talking fair. in terms of like like the young charismatic heartthrob that was in a lot of feel good movies. Like you're okay, I guess. It's
1: okay, Hanks, Jimmy right. Stewart was a leading man, but I don't I don't think anybody ever saw him as a heartthrob.
0: <laughs> I guess you're right, but point point being is like there is a generation. Of and I'm sure Tom Hanks might feel the same way. There is a generation of of actors that came after him that that idolized yeah. him, you know, in roles like this.
2: Yeah. There is a classic movie star thing about Clooney, like right. He is he is a modern the vibe gentleman, but he yes he has a the same kind of like vibe that like Eddie Murphy carries in in some of his roles and just sort of like this. This good-looking, leading man, a good actor, who carries a certain amount of class with them. uh, And as they get older, they seem to sort of just get better with age. Like Cary Grant. Uh, Cary Grant is a a great comparison, I think. It's all that Nespresso
0: money. That's that's what it is, guys. (laughs) It's it's not the movies. It's the fact he's been selling the world's greatest coffee. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I think, I think broader than that. I, I think this movie was very influential in many people. And I think, you know, Capra's catalog as a whole, I'm sure is often cited by, by many filmmakers, uh, moving on to our final discussion topic, I think, and this, this will be some fun, um, what if ism, uh, if this movie was made today, would it be marketed as a Christian movie and star Kirk Cameron? Oh God, I don't even want to think about it um i did propose a movie title though um or at least an addition to a series which is it would be god's not dead three the war on christmas eve
1: <laughs> it could be it could be but i mean this movie literally starts with people praying it's yeah. voiceover of a lot of people praying for george bailey and you hear all their voices and then we see kind of a, a version of heaven you know, we see yeah. the, the stars and galactic clusters and whatnot, and one of them is Joseph. And I always presume the other one was God, but I could not find anywhere, 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 anywhere that credited the other voice as God. It's just senior angel. So mm-hmm. there's Joseph and the senior angel and uh, Clarence. Gets summoned at one point. But so this is just assuming the existence of Christian theology, that this is, this is the real, uh, this is the true religion. This is what's actually present. And George prays at the end of the movie and gets his prayer answered. So, you know, I can see this being nowadays. There might be studios going. Oh, can you take the religious stuff out of it, and then we'll make it. And then, like, well, then how do we do the part where the angel performs the miracle where he hasn't been born, and so he gets to see his like? I don't, I don't know. A uh, dimensional warp, you know? He gets sent to it's another Doctor dimension Strange. where it's yeah. He gets <laughs> Doctor Strange transports him to an alternate dimension <laughs> yes. where he can see what his life would be like if he hadn't been born. <laughs> So, yeah, there we go. This will be the next Doctor Strange movie, Uh, (laughs) but yeah, because Christian movies run with this kind of theme all the time nowadays. Modern Christian movies do stuff like this everywhere, you know, what would my life be like without God in it?
2: But I feel like so many of the Christian movies would not include the dark edge this movie has. And that's the thing that makes this movie work. It, it it is not a flat, uh, everything is great movie. It's, it's multidimensional and the characters are multidimensional and it's not just, uh, cashing in on a Christian audience that starved for movies that pander to them. I, I think this movie is, is far more complex than that. If this was remade today as a Kirk Cameron movie, <laughs> I cannot imagine it would be remade well because th- those movies are just so pandering. Well, um, yeah, and and they tend down. to
1: not get good budgets either. I think the highest sure. budget, uh, quote unquote, Christian movie I've ever seen, and I'm not, I'm, I don't want to say that all Christian themed movies are bad. Okay, but I'm just saying that a lot of, most of them, they don't necessarily get the best budgets. They don't get the best writers, so they don't tend to turn out terribly well. I think the highest budget one I've seen is Left Behind with Nicolas Cage. Not the Kirk Cameron version, but the Nicolas Cage remake of it. And wow, is that movie terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's bad. It's super bad.
0: I'm sure the passion had a colossal budget.
1: Oh yes, you're right. Oh, sure. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that's that's pro that's gotta be the biggest one to date. I have seen The Last Temptation of Christ, which I would urge you, if you want to see a Christian movie, I would go see that. You you know, people think that it's See the Scorsese one. <laughs> people may think that it's blasphemous, but I mean the whole point of Jesus seeing his alternate life is that he chooses he still chooses to sacrifice himself at the end. So you get Bowie. Um, or, I you remember know, my actually, church
2: boycotting that movie when I was a kid.
1: Ah, uh, now see, this is what happens when you boycott stuff without actually watching it first.
0: Um, <laughs> Pontius Pilot is so much cooler as David Bowie, though.
1: So same with Dogma, actually.
2: I remember uh, when the Catholics boycotted Dogma as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Dogma's <laughs> actually a remarkably uh reverent film, for especially sure. for one that's got a poop monster in it.
0: Yes. So, <laughs>
1: Uh. Anyway. Anyway. Coming back to *It's Wonderful Life*.
0: <laughs> no. No. I, I I hear what you're saying, and I, and I I don't think a movie like this would would be as as earnest and as I don't think it would work as quite as well with with today's actors or budgets or or you know the political climate of Hollywood. The the way I look at it is very much of you know. I've never seen this movie as being especially religious, and and it is more guardian angel to me in the sense that you know, Clarence is just kind of there to push him in the right direction, and show him what could have been, and, and I and I think that you know, there's a lot of religions that that would that would have a figure like that that might be willing to come and kind of push you in the right direction. So that, that that's kind of how I look at it. Um, but you're right; it certainly has those undertones. I, I do want to call out though that while googling, you know, movies similar to this, I did not know. That there is a movie stalling dolly pardon where a country singer with a cheating boyfriend is killed in a car crash but on arriving outside the gates of heaven she is told by saint peter that she must go back to earth and complete tasks before she is able to enter heaven i need to see this this sounds insane
1: is that a remake of heaven can wait
0: <laughs> it's called unlikely angel stalling Do- dolly pardon
1: okay because there's a there's what a couple movies kind of like that. There's here comes Mister Jordan, and then Warren Beatty was in the remake. Heaven can wait.
2: I remember. Yeah, and, yep. and there was a Chris Rock remake of that. Oh um, goodness, yes, there was. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was uh, called
0: um, like 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 I was, like coming down or something like that. Like like so, so it was some sort yeah. of some sort of pun on like him coming down the earth. Yeah. Um, I need to see the Dolly Pardon Cheating Boyfriend Murder Christmas movie. It's also a Christmas movie. <laughs> Dolly Pardon is this? delightful. So She is delightful. There's no way this isn't great. Okay. Uh well, on that on that wonderful note, uh Phil, thank you for joining us for our longest episode of the season. Um, cuz it's a Wonderful Life really had us going, but we really appreciate having you. Uh, a reminder, audience, to check out Llamageddon in the feed next week. We're going to get this out, though, this week, uh, so you can listen to it ahead of the holiday and hopefully watch It's a Wonderful Life along with it. But let's go around the horn and see where we can find everybody online. Phil, what are you up to? Where can people find you?
2: Austin and I just wrapped our season three of The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. You can get that on YouTube or wherever you get podcasts. Season three, we reviewed, uh, four trilogies and we had a great time with it. So please check that out. You can find it, like I said, wherever you get podcasts or you can go to philrude.com and, uh, and all the links to the episodes are there
0: very very cool i also feel like i i'm, I'm going to continue the plug you on philrood.com because you do amazing art for each of the episodes yes. and a lot of it's available to purchase and i'll move my camera right here i got it up there
1: wow. there it is <laughs> I got it.
0: There's at least two of them up there, with a third one. Brett's
1: indicating a whole wall of framed art here, with, yes, which is definitely of got a fill are, drawing yeah, in there. There's a
2: couple pieces up there. Yeah, yeah
0: there's yeah. a couple fill pieces in there, and there's one that still needs to be hung up. So, uh, phenomenal art. Uh, I know it's past Christmas now, but if you were, if you were bad and waited, maybe now's a good it's time there. to go and yeah. find some art. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Brett. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also, really quick, I wanted to call out two things. Um, about the show that I forgot to call out. One is that we had mentioned the weird release dates. This movie was released in January, and Miracle was released in May, which is very bizarre. We would not release Miracle on 34th Street in May now, today. Um, And then the other thing is I looked up all three of the kids that we talked about earlier, because I wanted to see where they ended up. Totally different places. So Bobby Anderson, young George, um, he ended up staying in the film industry. Uh, He enlisted in the Navy during the Korean War, and then did a bunch of productions with Disney, Warner, HBO, and eventually worked not as, as a line actor, producer. Though. No, not as an actor. Yeah. Um, and then eventually worked as a line producer for films such as Demolition Man and Heat, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> died in 2008. Um, Jean Gale was the only one that ended up not doing anything beyond its wonderful life. I, I don't know what ended up happening to her. Um, and then uh, Jeanine and Ruse... Um, actually did a couple other roles as a child actor before eventually becoming a psychiatrist. Uh, yeah. And she is still alive. She is 84. Oh, wow. So
2: that's pretty cool. Good job, so job, Little George was in the <laughs> Korean War. He must have been like 17 years old. He was—he had to be a baby. That was only a couple of years after this movie.
0: Yeah, he enlisted as a war photographer. Um, that's pretty cool. I mean, not, that's wild. It's not cool, but I'd love to see his work. All right. Very cool. Um, Well, I just wanted to drop those. But Nicole, where can people find you online?
1: You can find me at Nicole underscore Davis on Letterboxd.
0: Very good. And you can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. If you'd like to follow along with the show, social.mgrpodcast.com. That's where you can find all these links and more, including on Facebook and Twitter. I am going to call out. If you want to get us something really nice for Christmas this year, if you're listening to the episode saying, wow, I love It's a Wonderful Life as much as they do you should review us on Apple Podcasts. That can be your gift to us this year. We'd love to get your feedback on there, whatever it might be. Um, we're kind of coming up together internally about what our goals are for 2022. And I know one of them is to uh, bring more people into the fold. Those reviews help immensely. So check it out on Apple Podcasts in particular, but Stitcher and Podchaser work too. Uh, but that'll do it for myself, Nicole, and Phil. We'll be back next week. David joining us with Lomageddon. See you then.
3: Good idea, Ernie, a toast. (laughs) To my big brother, George, the richest man in town. (laughs)